This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID, the smart choice for MDL implementations. Put citizens in control with Get Mobile ID, fully ISO compliant and UL certified for all transaction modes. Learn more at getgroupna.com. Welcome to AnvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Anva community. Now celebrating our 90th anniversary. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone. This week, I am pleased to welcome a new guest to our AnvaCast, Shenna Bellows, who is the Secretary of State for the State of Maine. Welcome to our AnvaCast. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. So I've asked you to come on, though I'm happy to see you. It's not really a happy topic uh, that we want want to talk about, uh, which is the unexpected crisis and crisis management that you and your team had to deal with uh, back in October following the shooting in Lewiston, Maine, where tragically 18 people lost their lives, 13 people were were injured, uh, and there is all of the, everything everybody would expect going around such a tragic event, but there were some unique elements that really impacted the Bureau of Motor Vehicles in, in Maine. And for those listening who don't know, Maine is one of three states that uniquely motor vehicle responsibilities fall under the Secretary of State's office, which we'll come back to in a moment. But let's go back to the day, October 25th, if I'm correct. Uh, Where were you and how did you first get the news? I was at a Bureau Motor Vehicles branch managers conference. We do them twice a year and we usually pick a, a nice location off season and bring all of our branch managers together. Uh, in a space for conversation and professional development. So it was uh, late at night. Uh, mm-hmm. Remember this happened in a bowling alley and a mm-hmm. bar. Uh, a lot of folks may not realize it was right around the corner from our Lewiston Bureau Motor Vehicles branch. Okay. Uh, in fact, we share a landlord mm-hmm. um, with one of the sites of, of the mass shoot casualty. And so I was in my hotel room. I think we had all, um, you know, it was after dinner mm-hmm. uh, when this occurred, and suddenly my phone starts blowing up with text messages mm-hmm. of concern. So I was immediately in touch with our director of public services, who oversees all of the branches, and our director of license services, uh, because it was clear this was unprecedented. It was alarming, uh, terrifying, and and my heart goes out to. The victims, the victims' families were still just struggling with the aftermath mm-hmm. of this. But the whole community was in shock. Mm. Uh, we made the immediate decision to close the Lewiston branch. That was crystal clear, mm-hmm. uh, given the proximity to the event. When we say close it, this was the evening, so you were making the decision to not open the next morning. That's right. Yeah. So and so the, no employees were there uh, because it was well after hours. Okay. Uh, so it wasn't an immediate threat. but. Maine is like one large small town. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, we did not know that actually we we ended up having a Bureau Motor Vehicle employee um, who had a family member who, who oh, was injured, yeah. uh, who was shot by the shooter and, and thankfully survived. We had another employee who also volunteers as a paramedic who was one of the first people on the scene. Oh, wow. So we, we suspected it would implement, imp- impact rather the Bureau Motor Vehicle's family um, and we made that decision to, to close Lewiston right away. Okay. And how did you then go about 
that screening of making sure where else in the agency or even the Secretary of State's office at large beyond the Bureau of Motor Vehicles to ensure that your employees were safe. I'm, I'm sure at the time while all this is breaking, the fear of somebody that's in the agency being involved or somebody you know, like you say, Maine being a big, small town, the chances of someone being involved that you know are probably pretty high. So in terms of the crisis management process of how do we get this information? Because having been in that hurricane of information myself over the years, texts are flying, phone calls are happening, somebody's dealing with a rumor here, a rumor there. You're in a hotel, you're not even in the office. How do you have a command central kind of approach to managing that information? I think it is so important to prepare for any emergency, and this is management 101, right? Mm -hmm. Is those phone trees, those uh, having the cell phone numbers or the personal cell phone numbers of your key employees. We had the fortune in some ways of being together. So the Mm -hmm. very next morning, we had closed the Lewiston branch. Mm -hmm. The suspect, uh, the perpetrator had not yet been apprehended. So the branch managers were together at breakfast Uh, and in contact with the acting managers, uh, the lead employees back in their branches, and uh, getting those calls, getting those text messages. We had some individuals who were scared to come to work. Mm. We had one individual who was in one of the municipalities that was literally in lockdown by law enforcement and and by the state as they were conducting the the search for the perpetrator. Uh, And... So those conversations were happening. In that room, we, we looked at the data in terms of customer traffic at the branches, and we saw immediately Maine had basically shut down. Mm. Everybody was, was glued to televisions, to news sources, mm. to social media, uh, and we could see that customer traffic in our branches was very low. And employee mental health, at many of the schools across the state had shut down in our larger municipalities and in southern Maine, uh, but some that were, you know, over an hour away from the original mm-hmm. site because we just had no knowledge of where that perpetrator might be. And that was an unusual aspect of, unfortunately, the all too many mass shooting events that we see in this country. The idea that the shooter was still at large and this manhunt was extended was an unusual piece as opposed to what we normally see in these tragic events. That's right. People realized that he could literally be Be anywhere. anywhere. And so employees were in the situation of every time a customer was coming in the door of a branch, even at our most far-flung branches, the anxiety levels were extraordinary. So we made that decision uh, by late morning uh, and around noontime to shut all of the branches statewide. The whole state, yeah. And part of the logic behind that was there, we really, we knew the perpetrator had a vehicle and mm-hmm, we didn't mm-hmm. know where he might be mm-hmm. in the state. Mm-hmm. And we knew he was armed and dangerous. And Maine is a rural state. It's not like there's surveillance cameras out in the woods uh, or um, uh, there just really wasn't that awareness. So we collectively made that decision. It was a recommendation from a senior section manager Uh, She said to me, and again, we were in that room together, um, Secretary, I really think we need to close down all of the branches. Uh, I conferred uh, with my communications director, uh, 
and uh, with um, and then brought the team. You know, sort of had a group meeting, and I said, "Does anyone disagree right. with this decision? This isn't the right decision. Is anyone yeah. opposed this?" And all of the branch managers were unanimous. So sure. we closed. We closed every single one, and we fortunately had uh, universal building control. So Maine, all of our branches are on a state centralized building control. So we could issue that order and have the doors lock. We could have our employees place um, signs on the door so members of the public approaching the branches would know. Mm -hmm. The communications director issued a, a quick press release and our media market is slow. It's very accessible, uh, excuse mm -hmm. me, small, it's accessible. And uh, we placed it on social media and, and employees were, were able to go home. And from a management perspective, I think that was the decision that needed to happen mm -hmm. because Really, very little work was happening, and mental health was yeah. was a real consideration. Did you make that decision? You talk about the coordination with the branch managers and the leadership team in the bureau. Was there any cross-agency communication, whether it was with the state police who maybe had intel on where the threats were, or other parts of government that also had public-facing offices that were maybe making similar considerations? We made that decision independently of the rest of state government. Um, we had been in touch with the governor's office, uh, you know, shortly after the event. Uh, I was in touch with the governor's office uh, and receiving information. But, but the collective information was very limited. Mm -hmm. And other state offices, Bureau Motor Vehicles is very unique in that we serve everyone, right? Mm -hmm. All mm -hmm. of our, across the nation. Uh, the motor vehicles branches are open to any member of the public who needs a license renewal or vehicle registration or, or, or whatnot. And in contrast, other state offices, whether it's Health and Human Services or um, Department of Labor, often those are appointment-based. Now, we had appointment systems, mm -hmm. and thank goodness, in any motor vehicles office that doesn't yet have an appointment system, <laughs> I highly recommend um, putting that in place but we also had the walk-ins, and yeah. so that, that was a real, really big factor. We did have to coordinate with building control, which is not under our jurisdiction, and we did receive some pushback. Mm. Why are you closing uh, Callis and Caribou, right. which are literally hours away? Hours away. Yeah, yeah. And, and our answer to that was um, we need to support our employees in this moment, and we are public-facing in a way that no other state agency is. Mm -hmm. and. Also, we had the data that showed us customers weren't coming to the branches either. Mm -hmm. So, so why why be there? Because there's probably that element of just the public being afraid to be out because don't know where this danger might be. Right. Yeah. So, right. how did the employees at large react to the the announcement? That announcement was very positively received. Now. The big question was then the next day mm. because it was only a decision on the one day. It the was, morning this was the morning after, after right? The morning the after, the exactly. Had people already started to report into the branches and then they got the news to go home? They did, and in retrospect, you know, perhaps if we could have made that decision more quickly, um, we may have. But I am still glad that we made the decision to close, even though that did mean employees coming in and then going home. Uh, again, well, I think was, the idea that he would have still been unapprehended was almost unfathomable in the moment because that so rarely happens. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we knew, I mean, we closed Lewiston the night before because we, we made an assumption that those employees would be of grieving course. with yeah. no people and, and because that site was Literally so close the to the site. site. Yeah. Um, but for the rest of the state, 
uh, we made that decision the next day, which was a Thursday. So then the question became, you know, as, as Thursday drew to a close and uh, the shooter had not yet been apprehended, what do we do on Friday? Right. And especially because we had received pushback um, from the administration and from other agencies who did not close, uh, there, there was some real tension there. So we made a decision um, to uh, lock our doors and do appointment-only mm. services. Okay. So we wanted to give our employees the reassurance that he wasn't going to walk in mm-hmm. um, because, uh, and, and that they, they had that physical barrier. Uh, and so we, we went to appointment-only for those branches that were in the circumference of the hunt. So law enforcement mm. seemed to be really focused on a couple of counties, on areas mm-hmm. uh, where he had lived, where his family lived, uh, and uh, closer to the original sites. And so we made a decision that those branches would be appointment only. But we actually ended up uh, locking the doors for, for branches around the state and then giving the managers who had returned home, we cut that mm-hmm. conference short, oh. uh, and giving managers the option of, of you know, opening if they wanted to be fully open to the public or, or just having someone uh, letting people in at the door for that you mm-hmm. know, additional level of protection. And normally, besides the locked door, do any of the branch offices in Maine have other security protocols on site? For example, in some states like where I am, there's a state police officer in every DMV branch office. Is there anything like that in Maine? I'm so glad you raised that. So at our Bureau Motor Vehicles, we have 15 detectives in our branch. It's the Division of Enforcement. So they oversee some of those traditional motor vehicles uh, issues, uh, identity theft, stolen vehicles, Mm -hmm. title fraud, dealer investigations. But they have all of the powers and and duties of any sworn law enforcement officer in the state. And from time to time, uh, had taken on some security roles, uh, for example, since I run elections in Mm. the election sphere. And so actually, uh, the night before the, you know, the night of the incident, I was in contact with our division of enforcement. We did deploy detectives um, to some of our branches the very next day when we thought we were going to be open just to help reassure folks to have that presence to give yeah. that presence um, to send a signal both to our employees and to our customers that we were taking this seriously and similarly uh, when we were going to these this system of of locked facilities again we deployed our detectives to work in the field to be at those branches uh, as an additional measure of safety now we knew that local law enforcement and state police were uh, laser focused mm, on the hunt and we did not want to try to uh, impact those resources at all, but we did reallocate our own resources to provide an extra measure of, of security um, and, and a sense of security, right? Mm-hmm, because there, mm-hmm. there are those, those decisions you make that actually improve security, and then there are decisions you make to show people mm-hmm. that you are taking security um, seriously. Yeah. And sometimes those are the same, and sometimes there are things that people don't see that are improving security. And yes. then there are other things where you really want that visual demonstration that right. this is, you know, we care about you employees, we care about the public. And, and I think both are important in a time when people are, 
are really panicked yeah. um, and, and frightened, and, and rightfully so. Yeah. So that takes you to Friday, where now Friday you're open with locked doors unless a branch manager decides they feel comfortable enough to do more. That's right. Uh, remind me now, the manhunt continues through the weekend. It continues through Friday night. Okay. And so we, we were in a quandary about what we would do the following week. Uh, we decided to take a, you know, a wait-and-see approach. Communication was very strong. Uh, I made a point on Friday of going um, to a branch, going to the administrative offices, our main offices, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, just being visible, being present with employees, uh, talking to employees um, who, you know, it felt like everyone knew someone who was impacted. Right. Everybody was grieving, uh, both for you know, as a state, because we hadn't experienced this collectively before, but also individually, because people lost friends and family members. Uh, so, um, so we were really kind of waiting to see, okay, what's going to happen. And going back to that crisis management piece, you know, um, our BMV deputy, Kathy Curtis, she's mm-hmm. famous, yes. we love her. Um, she was actually um, out of state mm-hmm. during this whole time. Mm-hmm. But she has done a tremendous job cultivating and training leadership within the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. I think mm-hmm. this is extraordinarily important, thinking about empowerment of your leadership team so that it's not one or two people making a decision. It wasn't mm-hmm. me making the decision or me and Kathy on the phone making the decision. Mm-hmm. It was it was broader than that right. with the Director of License Services, with the director of public services, and in turn, senior section managers and branch managers. And similarly, with branch managers being at this conference, they had acting capacity managers back mm-hmm. at the branches who mm-hmm. were providing support uh, and, and doing the implementation of getting the getting the sign on the door, right. you know, making sure the door was actually locked before leaving, coordinating um, to, to uh, find out where people were. And I think that's that leadership development that you do ahead of any critical incident is really important. Yeah. I'm happy to spend some love on Kathy. I mean, the ability for her to have spend the time to put those building blocks in place, put the right leadership team together, and like you say, create that culture of there's a crisis, so we're going to be a team, and everybody has to play their part and then feel empowered and enabled to go out and, and implement. Yeah, absolutely. We had some administrative decisions as well in terms of leave. So were we granting administrative leave and we made the decision to do so to any employee on Friday that did not want to come to work because either they were home with kids because schools were still closed closed. uh, because they were experiencing mental health Mm -hmm. um, uh, consequences. You know, we had um, at least one employee who'd been in a similar active shooter situation in a prior uh, experience in a different state. And so there were just different reasons that employees... Some employees needed to not be at work on Friday. And we were very permissive with that. We granted administrative leave outside of the traditional vacation and sick Mm -hmm. time. Um, Initially, so Thursday Thursday for everyone. Um, And then then we set up a system where we're like, we told managers be very, very permissive. If they want to take paid sick time under the state rules, even if they're not, um, you know, traditionally sick right let's let's give them that grace let's be really really accommodating uh with our employees yeah 
And that, and also that takes leadership and boldness. It may not be the traditional playbook of, you know, we have a policy you have to follow, but to say these are unusual circumstances, so we have to react to what we have here, knowing that they'll come back stronger if we allow them time now. That's the goal. And yeah. I think employee development, leadership development, at the end of the day, we are stronger if we are supporting our employees. And yeah. some people might say, well, I came to work. Why didn't this other person have to come to work? Right. And you have to think about, well, you know, you don't know what that other You're person's that circumstances person. yeah. are. And wouldn't you want that same grace shown to you in a future incident or yeah. a future right. future situation? Right. Um, so it wasn't without some pushback yeah. and some, uh, you know, we had some questions raised by human resources. Uh, we... Um, but, and, and we still, we're, we'll actually be meeting with employees, uh, at the Lewiston branch for an employee meeting, uh, in soon to have a debrief and a conversation mm -hmm. about, uh, how we can support them, uh, and be even stronger yeah. in our support for them. So how long did Lewiston end up being closed for? Oh my goodness. I, I should know this off the top of my head. We, they were closed. Well, then there was the complication of the president visiting. <laughs> so Lewiston reopened um, early in the following week. Uh, but then um, President Biden came to meet with victims' families. And Lewiston suddenly had to close uh, with with less than an hour's notice because oh, wow. the motorcade was going to be coming and the streets around the branch yeah. were going to be closed yeah. and we realized if the president stays for hours employees are going to be, trapped, be trapped in the there, branch doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that that was an additional complication that we had not planned on sure. and we did not get great communications i don't think that anyone in the governor's office or certainly not at the white house were thinking Oh, About there's the a Bureau of Motor Vehicles <laughs> down the street from the bowling alley and the bar. Uh, what about them? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so we, we had to move very quickly um, to allow employees to, to get home mm -hmm. so that they wouldn't be stuck there yeah. uh, when that happened. Uh, but we're still healing. That yeah. community is still really, really struggling. Uh, and the repercussions of those incidents will be with us for some time. Yeah. And so as you think about, you talked about the security measures you put in place in the immediate aftermath to make people feel comfortable. Has it caused you to go back and rethink long term? Do we rethink security in these branches? Do we rethink availability and access to these public services knowing that these threats are not going away? It's certainly a cause for conversation and reflection. Maine has always been a walk-in state. You mm. can come to any one of our BMV branches and just show up and get what you need. Mm. And that's been something we've been very proud of as our open doors, our commitment to customer service. That won't change. Uh, but you know, in recent years, there certainly has been an increase in gun violence. And you know, post-pandemic, there definitely have been challenges that some members of our communities have had with mental health that manifest themselves in abuse hurled on, you know, by customers hurled against mm -hmm. our BMV branch yeah. reps, right? Yeah. You're hearing that in a lot of states, unfortunately. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, Maine is a very um, pro-Second Amendment state. You know, we have a lot of um, 
high levels of, of gun ownership. And, and so there's a question though, you know, we have never had a prohibition on weapons in our BNB branches. And the legislature had a conversation last legislative session about whether we should have a prohibition. And they came down on the side of, no, thank you, let's, let's not move forward with that. But we're certainly um, contemplating that and then thinking through. So of course we have surveillance cameras, probably most Bureau Motor Vehicles uh, branches do. I think part of it has been in terms of the integrity of the operation but now we're thinking about the physical security and, and what mm. you know what we might do in that that regard. I think certainly building control measures and that ability to lock down is hugely important. Um, beyond that, I don't know. You know, you, you we need to recognize that this could happen, and it could happen anywhere mm-hmm. if it happened in Lewiston, Maine. Yeah. At the same time. Do we change our whole way of life? Do we change right. you know, our commitment to our customers uh, based on a single incident? So these are conversations, they're not easy. I don't have a one size fits all solution. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly how Maine's BMV branches will change over time. But I do think uh, we're soliciting employee input and we will continue to be thinking about what critical incident management plans do we have in place? Because yeah. all of this happened very fast. We we didn't have a critical incident manual that we went to to say, okay, do this, then do this, right. then do this. Uh, we were collaborating quickly. We were making decisions quickly. Uh, but we, you know, upon reflection, I think doing some scenario planning. In yeah. elections, we do uh, tabletop the vote where we think about what's the worst thing that could happen on election day. Yep. Perhaps that's some of what we need yeah. to start doing in the area of motor vehicles as well, is what are what are the critical incidents that could happen and sure. what are the ways in which we might respond yeah. just to exercise that muscle of decision-making yeah. about emergencies. Yeah, ma- many jurisdictions do, you know, even basic active shooter training, because even in this case, the shooter could have just as easily walked into the branch office as they did the bowling alley and the bar. And granted, it was after hours, so it would have been right. harder, but if he had been there during open hours, could have gone through those doors instead of the doors of the bar and the bowling alley, and would the branch have been trained and prepared on how to respond to that? Yeah, so there's a lot, a lot of jurisdictions that are looking at, at that preparation. For sure, yeah. and for us, I think, and that's a conversation we'll have with the employees as well, I think we probably wouldn't have been prepared for that yeah. if that's the situation that had happened, yeah. beyond the fact of the physical um, you know, separation mm-hmm. between our our back office and our front office. Right. So, in terms of as you look back, uh, managing through that crisis and the response from managing employees to dealing with closing the branches to sending everybody home early from your leadership training, as other executives are listening to this conversation, and you say, "Okay, one of the lessons I learned is if." as well prepared as we were culturally to respond, a couple of lessons learned in crisis management that I'll be better to do next time and maybe others can learn from is they want to be thinking ahead and planning ahead. Any lessons like that come out of the the journey? When I reflect on the Thursday, the day after the incident, I think that my instinct is always to 
you know, move forward, take what comes at you and keep going. And so that instinct to keep the branches open, to bring everybody in yeah. and to be like, okay. Keep government running is exactly. always like the first instinct. And, yeah. and, and I think the one thing I did well was to listen when my senior section manager said, Secretary, I really think we should close all the branches mm-hmm. in the state. That had not occurred to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was not the path that I was on yeah. in my crisis response. And so I do think uh, being able to make that shift from keeping government running no yeah. matter what right. uh, and that mindset of, you know, through rain and snow and flood and right, we're right, going right. to do this. Pandemics. <laughs> it's pandemics, exactly, right? Uh, it's something that motor vehicles does so well. Yeah. Uh, but I think being able to shift uh, is important. I also think, you know, in a competitive labor market, there are economic incentives to do well well by your employees. Yes. So an executive listening might say, you know, what do you mean you gave admin leave and yeah. said to your managers, you know, if people want to stay home for mental health reasons, let them do that. But again, when we're competing for workers mm-hmm. and as state governments, we are not often able to compensate people uh, in a competitive way with the Mm -hmm. private sector. People come to work for us because they care about serving people, uh, because there's predictability and stability in governmental service. But we need to be able to compete, and that means showing some appreciation for employees and really trying hard to get that right. Now, you don't always get it right, right? Um, I mean, I will say the Employees Union brought a grievance uh, against the main state police for, for, you know, and, and so you do have to have those conversations yeah. and, uh, and, and keep that door open and keep working, working on it. But there are strong economic incentives to, to support your employees. Yeah. So let, let me ask you, Shannon, the, um, Maine is one of three states, as we said earlier, that Bureau of Motor Vehicles falls under the auspice of the Secretary of State. Uh, in Maine, you're an elected official as the Secretary of State. I would imagine your interest in serving in that role, it's okay to say, probably wasn't (laughs) primarily driven in, I wanna lead and manage the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. But you knew it was something that came along with the the role. Uh, So is there something that's different or unique that you would imagine being a Secretary of State with oversight of motor vehicle operations as opposed to what we might see more traditionally where it ultimately rolls up to the governor's office vis-a-vis DOT or revenue, whatever it is, it's still within that more traditional executive governor's office where in Maine, you're not only elected, you're you're completely separate from the governor's office. You're not subsidiary in any way to the governor's office in Maine. So, yes, (laughs) true confession. (laughs) I ran for Secretary of State because I was passionate about voting rights. My career at the American Civil Liberties Union as a nonprofit uh, executive director and CEO, uh, had always been in the area of human rights and civil rights. And uh, and so that was my true passion. When I decided to run for secretary, I knew that I didn't know very much about the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, mm-hmm. except when I was head of the ACLU. And again, some of your listeners may gasp, but <laughs> I was part of the fight against Real ID. And now, mm-hmm. My job is, is thinking about the security of credentials and uh, the ability um, 
for states to trust the credentials of other states. I understand the rationale behind Real ID, but uh, that was the limitation of my my interaction. That's where I yep. first met Kathy, actually. Uh, but um, so I, I reached out to some veterans of Bureau Motor Vehicles and people who were really familiar, and you know, quizzed them. I did a listening tour, and I I love running the BMV, <laughs> and here's why. I think you know, uh, publicly we're in this time of division and conflict sometimes. And it's really important, I think, to people's confidence in the United States of America or in our country, in our nation, in our communities, to see government working for them. Mm -hmm. And the most visible representation of government is at motor vehicles, right? Every Mm -hmm. um, Mainer has to come to us for a license or an ID. Yep. And most Mainers, because we're a rural state, are also coming to us to register their vehicles and mm-hmm. title their vehicles. Mm-hmm. And so and I... And everyone's coming in to register trailers, but that's another <laughs> podcast for another day. <laughs> Kathy will probably send me a little message on that one, but we'll leave that one for another day. <laughs> um, but um, so I, I love it. I ran on a platform of technology modernization to better serve the people of Maine and equity and inclusion to reach traditionally marginalized communities. Mm. Well, what better places than at Motor Vehicle to both demonstrate accessibility of services and think about how do you configure a branch to make it more accessible to the public? How do you create a more welcoming and inclusive uh, environment when you walk in? And that's a work in progress. How do you create a workforce that is truly representative of the populations that you serve? And how do you create a culture that is welcoming of everyone? And then from a technology perspective, I mean, AMFA is doing many things right. And I think this sector is doing many things right when it comes to modernization. So, you know, at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles in Maine to have that opportunity to embark on a modernization Mm. effort and to see the synergy between motor vehicles and elections. Uh, Mm. So as secretary, having the privilege of implementing automatic voter registration where people can register to vote uh, electronically at motor vehicles where we're already confirming identity and residency Mm -hmm. and to take that next step from my perspective is incredibly exciting. So I love it. I love being a secretary that gets to oversee motor vehicles. And I, I do, I think that synergy between the work that motor vehicles does that's so foundational uh, to identity and residency in our country and then and how that connects to election integrity is Mm. crystal clear and it's also a lot of fun yeah have you i'm curious that that connection clearly it's clear in maine and probably as well in michigan and illinois where it's all in one place have you ever had any conversations with your colleagues your other secretaries of states in other states where they are completely not part of the the part of the agency that has motor vehicles. Um, and maybe if you hadn't, I'd be curious to hear back when you have their view of that connectivity, because there is a embedded partnership there in voter registration and the role DMVs plays and, you know, voting acts. Um, 
any conversations or perspective if it was separate? Some limited conversation. Yeah. I remember when I was moving forward with implementing automatic voter registration, I reached out to the secretaries in Colorado and New Mexico. Okay. And I said, do you have any advice? And they said, create a good relationship with your head of the BMV. I was like, yeah. okay, that one's done. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. Okay. It's me it's and it's also me. Kathy. <laughs> um, but I, I haven't had that broader conversation with more secretaries around the big picture issues. Yeah. You know, for example, online voter registration is mm -hmm. something that we'll be implementing in Maine in 2024. And I know states are moving into that space as well. So area, you know, for example, when someone is applying to register to vote online, how do you confirm that they mm -hmm. are who they say they are? How do you confirm that they're a resident of your state? Well, you know, the, the license information is a natural way to do some of that confirmation. Right. So uh, to check um, that voter. And so I, I think those those conversations are important. And you've given me you've given me some homework. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> and it's it's a timely topic in that, you know, going into 2024, where we'll have a big election year. Uh, and we know the coverage and aftermath of the last time around and what happens in elections and voting registrations and all those, all that noise. Uh, and to make sure that both our Secretary of State's offices, our elections bureaus, our DMVs are in a as strong a position they can be because we know everybody is doing everything right and making sure that they not only continue to do it but don't become susceptible to maybe those that would accuse them otherwise. How's that for threading that needle? I think that's beautifully <laughs> done. We all have a stake in our democracy, right? Yeah. And at Motor Vehicles, we all have a stake in... Uh, people feeling really good about the services we're providing, but also being well-resourced by our elected officials. Yeah. So I, I used the word synergy earlier. I think it's really clearly there. And I think in 2024, uh, motor vehicle offices around the country can do a great service to election officials by strengthening that partnership and offering uh, to work together to strengthen public confidence in our elections, yeah. which is good for all of us. Right. Confidence in elections, confidence in government, confidence in, in public service. Well, well said. Yeah. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for coming by and chatting with us today, uh, telling us a story as tragic and horrific as it is. Um, it's uh, wonderful to hear that even in that moment of challenge and tragedy, um, you were not only able to have a team that supported you and the state, but you were able to do it in a way that supported your employees. And I think for me, that's one of the big takeaways listening to your story in that in a time of challenge, you were able to make sure that your employees, these public servants, felt protected, loved, and cared for. Um, and I think that's, that's a beautiful story in a, in a tragic event. Thank you so yeah. much for having me. And I hope no other motor vehicle agency in the country ever has to go through this. But I think some of those big picture lessons for critical incident planning are, are there. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Till next week, everyone, stay well. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.